let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither, and all that they do they prosper." The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson comes from the first letter to the Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verses 12 through 20. Uh, Paul is responding to questions that are arising within the Corinthian congregation. They have questions about perishability and imperishability and mortality and immortality. Paul is talking about death and he's talking about resurrection. So listen now for the word of God to the church. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The pastor I most remember from my youth, Dr. Joe Mullen, passed away in December at the age of 94. He was an amazing preacher and teacher. And just a few years ago, the young men's Bible class at First Presbyterian Church in Greensboro invited him to come back out of retirement for a Sunday and teach the class that he had led so many times during his pastorate. And he began that class by recalling a memory that he had from Early on in his ministry, he was walking through the lobby of a hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, after visiting a sick member 
When an acquaintance came through the revolving door of the lobby, it wasn't a member of his church, but it was a friend of his from the community, from his Rotary Club. It was kind of an, he was an affable guy, and he yelled across the lobby, Hey, preacher, what do you know? For sure. <laughs> it's a loaded question for someone who spends their career in the world of faith. But Dr. Mullen laughed the question off at the time. Still, it obviously stuck with him. It even needled him, I think, so much that he devoted an entire Sunday school lesson to that question more than 40 years later. In the life of faith, what do we know for sure? The people in Corinth were asking the same question about the life of Jesus. What do we know for sure about what happened to the body of Jesus after he died on the cross? I think it's hard for us to blame or judge these new converts in Corinth for asking such a question. Even the disciples who had seen the risen Lord with their own eyes were extraordinarily hard to convince. They had to run and see the empty tomb for themselves. Some of them had to actually touch the wounds on his hands and his feet. The two men who left Jerusalem on Easter afternoon to walk to Emmaus walked for miles with Jesus, but they were too distraught to recognize him. They thought it was all over, that Jesus, the one who was supposed to change everything, was gone for good. They had, after all, seen him die. They had seen his broken and bloody body taken into the tomb. They had seen the stone roll into place, crushing and sealing the great hope that they had in him. Since those earliest days, every generation of Christians has been nagged by its own doubts about what really happened. I think we still ask today the same questions that we hear voiced in the Gospels. Maybe he wasn't really dead. Maybe he was in a coma or something. Or maybe he was dead, but his body was just taken and never found. Maybe the person that the disciples saw on and after Easter was somebody that just looked a lot like Jesus. Maybe they were delusional. Maybe it was all just wishful thinking. And as science advanced over the centuries, I think those doubts just got more and more vexing. We learned about the toll that time and stress and disease can take upon the flesh of the body Even when we figured out how to shock a stopped heart back into rhythm, we knew that that heart would eventually stop beating again. We see, we learn, we experience in our own lives. We know that to be human is to die. And that when someone dies, they do not come back. So this is why Paul is so direct in these verses. Paul knows that resurrection is a mystery for many of us. That even if we can get comfortable with the idea of a person's soul or spirit living on in some way, a body is another thing altogether. But Paul makes it clear that the resurrection of the body, and especially the body of the Messiah, 
is central to the faith that we profess. Everything hangs on it. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then our proclamation has been in vain and our faith has been in vain. In essence, Paul says that if the resurrection did not happen, if it didn't actually happen, then we are frauds because we have been misrepresenting God. But fortunately for us and for the world, we are not frauds because this is something that Paul knows for sure. In fact, he writes, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, because his resurrection is a fact, because it really happened, not just in spirit, but in the flesh, there is hope for you and for me. And that hope touches every aspect of who Jesus was, what Jesus taught, and what Jesus has done for us. If the resurrection did not happen, what would we say of Jesus today? That he was a really good teacher that he was a wise prophet, that he modeled good ethics, that he was courageous in the ways that he stood up to power, all of that commendable. But without the resurrection, all of it dies with Jesus. And that's why the men on the road to Emmaus were so distraught. They thought that everything that they had hoped in Jesus had died with Jesus on the cross. And it was like the world had been right all along to tell them that a Messiah was like this. That the philosophy of the world never bought it. The world had always mocked the idea of turning the other cheek on an enemy. The world had always mocked the idea that love was better than raw power had always mocked the idea that you could gain your life by losing it, had always mocked the idea that to be great, you must be a slave or a servant. And the resurrection saved all of that. Everything he taught about faith and hope and love, those things were not beaten by the world because Jesus was not beaten by the world. We still talk about Jesus for one reason and one reason only, because he beat death. Paul calls it the last enemy to be destroyed, the ultimate end of death that no one else could ever beat. And the significance of that victory is summed up in the simple but profound promise of Jesus, because I live, you also will live. The resurrection is a fact, Paul says, and everything hangs on it. When I was a Boy Scout, my troop did a lot of backpacking. My scoutmaster was not a fan of car camping. It was his mantra that if we wanted it, we had to carry it, and often for a pretty good while before we used it. So one day we had gotten away a little late on a Friday afternoon. By the time we made it up to the mountains, to the trailhead, it was already dark. We had a two-mile hike that night to our campsite before we could cook, before we could set up, before we could do anything. And our first instinct as 12 to 13-year-old boys was to go through our packs and find our flashlights so that we could see the trail in front of us. Now, our scoutmaster, who was far wiser than we were, suggested gently that this might not be the smartest 
way to go. We, in our adolescent wisdom, refused to believe him. We got our flashlights. We thought, if we want to see the trail, we're going to use our flashlights. How else would we see in front of us? For the first mile, we did not make good time at all. Our flashlights were working just fine, but we found that they only illuminated a little tiny spot right in front of our feet. And beyond that little circle of light, we were basically blind. The trail was rugged, and what was happening is we were falling all over the place. We couldn't see enough, right? So when we stopped to take a short break, our scoutmaster suggested, again gently, that we try hiking for a while without our flashlights. There's more light than you think, he said. Trust me, your eyes will adjust. So we did trust him. The first couple of steps were dicey, let's just say, but fairly quickly our eyes did adjust. The moon was not full by any stretch that night, but it was still reflecting a considerable amount of light, and the trail pretty quickly came into focus. We could see the rocks and the roots in front of us. We could even see the path as it wound its way up the mountain and curved around a bend. We could see the dark outline of pine trees on the ridges around us, and then above them, a brilliant panoply of stars hovering above. We hadn't even known that they were there when we got out of the car and started rummaging around for our flashlights. We hadn't realized it, but light was everywhere, and we could easily see the path ahead. When we look at the world, it is easy for us to see the darkness. Death, the last enemy to be destroyed, is real, and it is often cruel. And we want to believe in the resurrection, but it can be a light that is pretty difficult to see. And just like the earliest Christians and every generation since, we can sometimes doubt that this light exists at all. But the resurrection is a fact, Paul says. It is something that we know for sure. And if we can quit trying to generate our own safety and security, if we can dare to put down our own little handheld inadequate lights, we will discover that the resurrection is the light that makes everything come into view. The resurrection is the light in the darkness, the light that the darkness could not overcome. So you may be wanting to know, what did Dr. Mullins say to the young men's Bible class? What, after a lifetime of faith and ministry, did he know for sure? I will never forget what he said. Three things I know for sure, he said. Life is short. Death is certain. And God keeps his promises. And the key promise, the one that holds it all together, is this. In fact, Christ 
has been raised from the dead. Thanks be to God. Amen.